the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time and time again in Scripture, we see God giving wicked people space to repent, right? But like Jericho got seven more days to repent, like Ai got an Israeli defeat as another opportunity to repent, Gibeon now has an opportunity to repent and submit to God without using deception. They didn't take that opportunity, so now God gives them one more opportunity to repent, to completely forsake their old lives in order to follow Him. And in perfect love. And the more that people rejected those opportunities, the more difficult their situation became. See, the Gibeonites don't start off in the right place, but they do humble themselves by their confession. And so in that humility, they accept Joshua's curse for their deception. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had proven His power and His mercy time and time again. He had brought the Israelites out of their enslavement in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness of their wanderings and disobedience. They made it to the edge of the land promised to them, and Moses gave his farewell address in the book of Deuteronomy. God made Joshua the son of Nun, the leader over the nation of Israel. They crossed the Jordan River during its swell season. Once across, the Israelites received victory over the walled city of Jericho, sparing Rahab and her family. Then, God gave the Israelites victory over the city of Ai and Bethel. The rest of the land of Canaan feared the one true living God. The Gibeonites decided to try and trick the nation of Israel into making a vow that they would not destroy them. The Israelites did not seek God on their decision. After agreeing to the vow, the Israelites went to go visit the land of Gibeon. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 9, verse 17. So the children of Israel journeyed, and this was the army (laughs) journeyed, and they came unto their cities three days later. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chepirah and Be'eroth and Kirjath-Jireim. Kirjath-Jireim is a city that Israel had known about before. When Israel came to invade the Promised Land the first time, they came up from the south. Kirjath-Jireim was one of the cities that came out and fought against them and whooped them. Because remember, they did decided they're not going to go in. Why'd you bring us up here to kill us, God? And then God said, fine, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die. And your children, who you're so worried about thinking I'm going to kill, they'll go take the land. They said, no, 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 we'll go up now, God. Your kids ever do that? Kids ever do that? Oh, I'll obey now, Daddy. No, it's too late. Consequences are consequences. Israel went up anyway. And they got whooped by these guys. So you can't imagine what it's like for the armies to crest over whatever hilltop it was and see the very people who killed them 40 years earlier. And so it says the children of Israel did not smite them because the princes of the congregation of Israel had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, but they are mad, mad, mad. All the congregation murmured 
means to grumble against or to blame the princes, the leaders of the tribes. You know, Israel had already lost God's favor once when Achan sinned at Jericho. Allowing unbelieving Canaanites to live was another violation. The people are very upset because their leaders have now put God's favor at risk again. Now, leaving them alive is disobeying God. But breaking a promise is also disobeying God, right? So what can the tribal leaders do to make things right with God? Well, you ever heard your mom or your dad say, two wrongs don't make a right? It's a catchy phrase. It's something that our culture still probably uses today to kind of communicate a truth. It is true. (laughs) But so often we don't listen to that truth. When we see a wrong, we decide to react wrongly in return. And Israel, if they go wipe these guys out, that's responding to a wrong with a wrong because they did make a promise. So the leaders decide we're not going to try to fix a wrong by doing another wrong. Verse 19, as the grumbling and complaining is coming to them, the princes said unto all the congregation, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This verse is so important. It is so good. If you struggle when you're being wrong to wrong somebody back, you need to like put this verse somewhere where you could see it on a regular basis because it gives you the added lesson we need to have that two wrongs don't make a right. And the added lesson is this. When confronted with what you don't understand, fall back on what you know to be absolutely true. They're confronted with a situation that looks like a no win. Well, if we don't kill them, we're disobeying God. But if we do kill them, we're disobeying God. What do we do? Let's forget about that for a minute. Let's fall back on what we know we must do. And what they know they must do is that we have sworn unto them, not just to them, but by the Lord God of Israel. And then there's a colon, which means they paused and let that sink in. When they were confronted with what they had no clue what to do, they fell back on what they knew they must absolutely do, which is keep their promise, not to the Gibeonites, but to God. Does that make sense? They needed to keep their promise to God. And so they said, now, therefore, we may not touch them. That is a very mild word. It means to strike violently. We may not violently do anything to them. Now, you might be thinking here, but they were lied to. Doesn't that invalidate their oath? Not in the least. This wasn't a simple agreement. Israel brought God's name into it. And therefore, God's name would be tarnished if they broke their promise. See, this is why Jesus said, don't make a vow to God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because when you make a vow, whether it's a marriage vow or business vow to God, God expects you to keep it. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter five with me. Ecclesiastes is that little tiny depressing book right before Song of Solomon. Like don't read that if it's been a rough time because it's written by a man who's not walking with God. The theme of the book is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's nothing good under the sun, right? Most of the book of Ecclesiastes is looking at life under the sun, not in heaven. It's not looking at it from a heavenly perspective. It's looking at it from an earthly, fleshly, carnal perspective. But there are moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, who is the wisest man in all the world, and remembers his relationship with God that he had once, pokes his head up above the clouds and gives us a truth. And so you'll see him speckled all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. One of them's here. In chapter 5, verse 1, Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, keep your foot. I like to keep my feet. I don't want to lose my feet. What does that mean, keep your foot? It means walk prudently, walk smartly, walk wisely. When do you need to walk wisely? Walk wisely when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Now, why? What is the point? 
Well, remember the house of God is not like our house of God here. Okay, like we call this the house of God. It's God's house, but it's not the place where God lives. God lives here. We're the house of God, right? But they called the temple the house of God because that's where his presence dwelt. And when you would go to the house of God, it wasn't just to sing or to you know, learn the Bible or anything like that. More often than not, you would participate in some way. You didn't just go to go. You would go to bring a sacrifice or an offering. Now, there are all sorts of offerings you could make. When you sinned, you had to make an offering. When you trespassed, you had to make an offering. But most of the offerings that were brought to God were what were called free will offerings. You could bring a burn offering where you would commit your whole life to God, make a promise. You could bring a grain offering where you'd commit to serve God for a period of time. You bring a peace offering where you just wanted to hang out with the Lord, just celebrate him for all his goodness toward you. So the vow he's referring to here, to be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, he's referring to those vows that you'd make to God when you'd come into the temple and say, God, I give you my whole life. God, I'm going to serve you for the next, you know, three months. He says, when you come in, walk carefully. Don't just say something because you're caught up in the splendor and in the moment. Don't give the sacrifice of fools for When you do that, you don't consider you're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you're upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, people will say, you know, this is why our prayers should be short. That's not what he's saying there. What he's saying there, and by the way, I'm a big fan of short prayer. I mean that seriously. Like if you're the guy or the woman that when you are at the dinner table eating and you're going to pray for the nations, I commend you for your heart but you might want to pick a different time. But the idea here is let your words be few. It means don't utter foolish vows to God. Don't make all these promises to God because you're caught up in the emotion in the moment. For a dream comes through the multitude of business, through just a bunch of activity, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Verse four, when you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Better it is that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And don't suffer your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say, therefore, before the angel. The whole temple was carved with angels and the curtains and everything like that because it was supposed to be a picture of heaven. So there you are. The idea is when you're in the temple, you're in the presence of God and all the holy angels. Don't say when you come in there afterwards at a later date and, and you say, well, God goes, you made this commitment to me and you go, oh yeah, God, I've, you know, I've just been busy and I got to take, take care of this first, whatever. Don't say to the angel that you made a mistake. For why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For the multitude of many dreams and many words There's also much vanity, but you fear God. What's the point? As Christians, we should just be people of integrity. We shouldn't have to make all these promises and vows, you know. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, in a religious home. We weren't born again. My mom was, but no one else was. And so, of course, what do you do when you're a kid and you got caught? I swear on the Bible. I swear on the Bible. You know, we did that all the time. You know, if you're with your siblings, you know, and they didn't believe it, no, I swear on the Bible. Don't do that. Just be a person of integrity. Because when you do, though, in those important moments, like when you get married or you make a business agreement, you know, or you, you, you know, sign a contract, you know, for something, and you, you need to honor it. You know, those things are serious. God doesn't just let you out of those things. He doesn't just say, oh, oh well, well, you're not happy, or this is too hard, or you made a bad choice. He doesn't ignore that. So when they promised here before, not just the Gibeonites, but the Lord God of Israel, to enter into this covenant with them. They can't just break it because, well, they lied to them. 
So having established this clear understanding of their responsibility, they present now the leaders of Israel because the people are grumbling. They present now their alternate plan for the Gibeonites. Look at verse, back here in Joshua 9, look at verse 20. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us, God's wrath. Like the sin at Jericho, if they were to kill them because they made a promise to God, God's wrath would be upon them. So they said, let's not do that. Let's let them live so that God's wrath doesn't come upon us. But instead, the princess said to them, let them live, verse 21, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. So their proposal is we'll make them do the most menial tasks a person could do in that day, the lowest position in society, the lowest paying jobs in society. In other words, to be members of Israeli society, that's the only way they can continue now because they're in the land and Israel's going to take all the land. They're not just going to coexist with the Gibeonites. They would have to join Israeli society to be part of the covenant people. And to be members of Israeli society, that means they must convert to Israel's faith and adhere to God's laws. So the solution here is a right one. The solution is they can live just like Rahab but only if they decide to follow the Lord and if they take this low role in society. And so verse 22, Joshua goes to make that offer to them. That satisfies the people. They say, that sounds like a great idea. So verse 22, Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you beguiled us? Saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us. The phrase there, wherefore, means to what end? What's your end game? What's your goal here? What is your plan? We've discovered you now. What's the end game? Because if you're trying to subvert us from the inside, that's not going to work. Here's your only option. Now, therefore, you are cursed. Unlike Rahab, who was able to live as a fully free citizen of Israel, these Gibeonites would never have that opportunity because of their deception. They would be servants. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And there shall be none of you freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they wouldn't be slaves to the tribes. They'd be servants to the Levites and the priests, helping in menial tasks instead of pursuing whatever industrious life they had prior to this. Remember I told you before, this is a prospering, thriving city. They would not be able to return to that. They would be the assistants to the Levites and the priests. Now, This is a prosperous nation. They have a big army. They occupy a prominent position in the land. So to avoid a fight with Israel here, they have to decide to follow the Lord and to accept the consequences of their decision. And that is the mercy of God. Mercy of God? They're going to be servants. How is that the mercy of God? Well, they were already under condemnation, weren't they? God had told Israel to wipe them out. But like Jericho got seven more days to repent, like Ai got an Israeli defeat as another opportunity to repent, Gibeon now has an opportunity to repent and submit to God without using deception. They didn't take that opportunity, so now God gives them one more opportunity to repent, to completely forsake their old lives in order to follow him. Time and time again in Scripture, we see God giving wicked people space to repent, right? Like when we read about the woman Jezebel who We don't really know who she was. I don't even know if that was her real name. Who was teaching the church in Thyatira, I think. I think it's Thyatira. Was teaching them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. You'd think that's somebody who needs to go, right? But the Lord, he says, I've given her space to repent. And if she doesn't, then judgment will come. 
Time and time again, we see God through Scripture giving wicked people space to repent. And the more that people rejected those opportunities, the more difficult their situation became. See, unlike Jericho and Ai, who choose to persist in their rebellion against God, the Gibeonites were following that same route, that same path, and now they have one more opportunity to repent. And this time, they do. They take God's hand extended in mercy, the last chance they have. And in verse 24, it says, they answered Joshua, and they said, because it was certainly told your servants how that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were so afraid of our lives because of you and done this thing. We don't have an end game. We didn't think that far ahead. We're just trying to survive here. So now behold, we are in your hand as it seems good and right unto you to do unto us. Do it. Do it. They finally come clean. We don't have any treacherous motives to subvert your invasion. We're just terrified of dying. What if they had turned that terror into faith instead of more sin by deceiving Israel? What if they'd sent the delegation to Joshua and told the truth and then asked for God's mercy? God would have shown mercy. So how do you know? God did it with Rahab and her family. So God would have showed mercy. So here's the million-dollar question. What if Israel's leaders had sought God? Would God have said, aha, they're lying. Wipe them out. That's the big question, isn't it? Like, what would have happened if they sought the Lord? Did this just happen because they tricked Israel and got away with it? I can't say for sure what would have happened, what God would have said, because it's hypothetical. But I'm absolutely convinced God would have told Joshua to confront their sin and give them one last opportunity to confess and seek mercy. Why do I think that? Well, as you look through Scripture... The Gibeonites have a very special place in God's heart from here on. They're almost always mentioned in a positive light. And God actually judges Saul when he tries to wipe them out later on in Israel's history. Judges them. See, the Gibeonites don't start off in the right place. But they do humble themselves by their confession. And so in that humility, they accept Joshua's curse for their deception. Behold, we are in your hand as it seems good and right unto you to do unto us, do it. So verse 26, so he did unto them, and he, Joshua, delivered them, the Gibeonites, out of the hand of the children of Israel that they slew them not. He convinced the children of Israel to spare them, to save them. The rest of Israel was still bent on wiping them out. But through this agreement, Joshua stays their hand. And so Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day. So Joshua's saying when he's writing this, years later after the invasion's over, they're all settled in, he goes, to this day, they're still serving faithfully. To this day. In the place which he should choose. In other words, wherever the tabernacle would go, that's where they would go. They wouldn't be Gibeonites in that, that sense anymore. They would be servants of the Lord. And thus, the Gibeonites are Canaanites who don't experience God's judgment, even though it was promised to them because of their great sin. Kind of like us, right? We don't experience the judgment that God says is already upon us if we don't know Christ. In the book of John, I think it's chapter three at the end, he says that if you don't believe, the wrath of God abides upon you now. But God didn't give us wrath, did he? He spared us because we decided to become his servants. And here's the awesome part. God who is so gracious, giving us far more than we could ever hope for, not only accepts them, but they get to follow God around for the rest of their lives, serving at the tabernacle. That's us too. 
When you look at your past and you think, why would God ever use me? You can't do that. Because nobody has a reason he can bring that God would use you. We're all Gibeon. But he brought us close. He made us priests, a kingdom of priests. And now we have the awesome privilege of those who were not a people being his people. Even though we've rebelled against God and don't deserve being spared judgment, God in his grace does so much more than that. He adopts us as his children. Jesus says, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you my friends. He makes us joint heirs with Christ and makes us a kingdom of priests to him. Isn't God good? (laughs) So good. So if you've blown it, don't think God's written you off. Don't think God's written you off. You can't change the past, but you can humbly receive his goodness as you move forward. So if you've blown it, confess your sin, if you haven't yet, and then walk in the light as he is in the light from now on. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The Gibeonites got one thing right, and they heard of your fame and your reputation. They didn't want to be on the other side. So Lord, tonight... We acknowledge your greatness and Lord, we acknowledge that we're just like Gibeon. We've deceived, we've gone our own way, done our own thing. We've resisted, Lord, your calls to repent, to come to your mercy. But Lord, here we are tonight. Pour out your mercy upon us anew. Lord, take these lives that could never earn your favor, could never earn the right to be used by you. God, would you use us? Would you take us and, Lord, do something far beyond what we could even ask or imagine in your love and in your kindness? I pray that for every dear brother and sister here tonight. Bless them, Lord. Fill them with an awareness that their sins are forgiven, Lord, that nothing can separate them from your love. Draw them close to you, that they would taste of your goodness and move forward in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Gibeonites knew that God was going to bring judgment on all their people. They had knowledge of the Lord, but did not know of his mercy and grace. God is merciful and gracious, abundantly pardoning, forgiving sins of all who come to him humbly and on his terms. We can be confident of his love and mercy. We don't have to be like the Gibeonites in the sense of being afraid to approach our holy and righteous God. But, like the Gibeonites, we should humbly accept that it is only God's mercy that can save us. We cannot save ourselves. God is so merciful. Come to Him. He will never turn us away. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.